Welcome to Valiantly Spoken. Today I'm talking with Christine Wilson Goodner, class of 1995, about her work as a violin teacher, teaching the Suzuki method, and helping parents and kids through practice. So tell us about your time at Valley Catholic first. So I came to Valley Catholic as a sophomore in high school, and at the time, the public middle schools went 7th, 8th, ninth grade. So it was like a natural time I was going to high school somewhere, and it just felt like I wasn't maybe getting the support I needed, or my parents felt like I was getting kind of lost in the sea, I think, of kids as my perception as the student. And so I came as a sophomore, and then I'm the oldest of four. So everybody else sort of came, kind of trickled into Valley as there was spots that were open. Um, so we all graduated from there. But I think what really struck me is I came in having never written a paper before. I had written like paragraphs, but, and I'd written like poem, you know, you'd have poetry in school or whatever, but I came in and people had just been like churning out essays since the sixth grade. And I was sort of in shock. That first year was really rough. I remember conferences upstairs in the Howard room with all the teachers and my parents, like trying to sort me out. And, um, and it turned out, you know, I actually really loved writing. I, there was some essay contest, I think as a senior in high school that we entered through the judicial judicial society or something that I that I won as a writer and it, it, it came out that I was actually pretty good at it but I just had never been asked to write before and I think that really stuck with me when I chose my own children's education and where would I send them to school I just thought like wow when I got to college I just felt like it was sort of an easy step across to the next step and I definitely some of my peers really were having that first experience of wow I've never written a paper like this before and I felt like it just was we could just turn them out in your sleep almost because you did it so much. So like, I really credit Mrs. Carlin. I had her for junior English and we just, I just feel like there was periods of time where like every single day you came to class and you wrote a five paragraph essay, like every day. <laughs> and you, it just got to where you could just write about anything. And I just can't, can't emphasize how important that was to me to be able to do that. And I've really learned through the years that I, I kind of learn what I think about things through writing. Like some people process by talking out loud, but I really process by writing. And so just having that skill, I think, set me up to do a lot of things later in life. I'm really grateful for that. So tell us about the path that took you to where you are now and what you're doing now. It's, I think it's really interesting when we think about where we end up, because I thought I would be a classroom teacher. I was always into education my parents have these pictures of me like lining up dolls and teaching them lessons and there's pictures of me lining up cousins at like summer vacation to teaching them things and like it just always I always thought I would teach something so I went in with a thinking I would be an education major and I played in the PSU symphony I, I didn't say this before but another really pivotal part of Valley Catholic for me was being in the orchestra and sister John Therese was my conductor and that was just really formative for me too. all those different experiences I had around around music. And so I did music on the side in college. I was in the orchestra. I took some classes, but I thought, well, I'll be I'll be a education major. I'll teach grade school. And there was this moment kind of towards the end of my degree when somebody who was a family friend said, oh, you teach my daughter violin. I know you play. She just kind of like would like to learn. We just want something kind of informal. And just having that lesson with that student sort of clicked something in me like, oh, no, this is what I want to do. And I feel like I can make a bigger impact if I'm one-on-one -on -one with a, somebody teaching music than a big classroom. So that fit what I like to do really well. 
And then a big part of my major, I was an early childhood education major. A lot of the prerequisites just fit into what you'd need for your master's or your teaching degree. So it seemed like a good fit, very interdisciplinary. And we had all these classes about being a reflective practitioner and just reflecting on everything you did and writing it out and talking it out. And I think because of that experience, I went on, I started teaching music lessons. Um, I actually taught at the Valley Catholic Music School for 10 years while my kids were in school at Valley. So that was really a fun way to be back on campus. Like Sister John Therese taught down the hall for me and I got to pop in and have kind of a mentor relationship with her. Yes, I love her too. Yeah. Yeah. So sweet, but also really has high standards and high expectations. And I think like that is, yeah, she really inspired me to try to be the same, like expect a lot and then treat people with extreme grace and kindness. So, so that was, that was a big influence on me. So I did teach lessons. And then I think just because I was trained to be reflective and trained to do all this writing, I just started a blog on the side, maybe 11 years ago. Um, and just for more for myself to just process. And I thought, well, I teach better if I write about it and I share what I'm doing. And I didn't expect anyone too much to read it. I think it was like my mom commented sometimes and that was it. And over the years, it just became something that was more important to me to share through writing. And I started to realize I did music with my own two children and it was really hard to practice with them. I teach the Suzuki method. A lot of my long-term teacher training and pedagogy training is in that method. And there's a big emphasis on parents working with their children. And I just felt like I was really bad at it, even though I was telling other people <laughs> how to do it because we just fought it all the time. And I always tell this story of my oldest daughter who was like very strong-willed both of us are and this one day she just like threw her bow across the room <laughs> it was like this horrifying moment and I was like that's it we're done you're not practicing anymore go to your room and she just like pumped her fist and went yes and ran away and that was like the low low moment because I realized she would rather be like punished than to practice with me <laughs> but I noticed like a lot of people who I would teach that was the sticking point like that's why they were stopping lessons often is there was all this conflict in practice and I just started to talk a lot of families through how to work through that. And then I started to write a little bit about that. And it's it sort of turned into a big part of what I do. I still teach, but a lot less students. For a number of years, I taught 40, 50 students a week. And I was just like teaching all the time. And now I'm more down to 20, 25 students a week. And I do a lot of talking to parents about how do we practice with our children? How do we nurture the whole child? And how do we think about making them love music, but also not ruining our relationship with them through practice. And so I think because I started to get up on a soapbox about that topic and just get fired up about trying to help, I guess, people have a big picture on all that, that's sort of turned into a big part of, of what I do now. So what are some of the problems that kids and parents face during practice? And what are some techniques that people can use? I think a lot of times when children are really young and we're going to practice with them, we have this mental picture of like a stand in the middle of a room and a child standing in one place and focusing for a great length of time. And I think just understanding what practice looks like for young kids, like sometimes it's like rolling on the floor and sometimes it's like more time coaxing them to come do something than they're actually being productive. And it doesn't mean it's always gonna stay that way. So I think having realistic expectations and thinking about, you know, if I could go back, I would think more about, okay, what does my child particularly need to be good at this versus this is the way, the correct way that we practice with children. And I think thinking about, okay, what, what makes my child motivated? What makes my child learn best? 
and how do we work with that instead of fight it? I think that's my biggest, like if I had to put it into one big nutshell, that's a lot of what I talk about. So it's definitely about understanding each kid and not specific techniques that you can implement with all kids. Yeah. There's this quote I love by the author Benjamin Hardy, and the quote goes, create conditions that make success inevitable. And I love that. I like framing that for parents, just like, here's some ideals, here's some tactics, but what's the mindset that we have if we can just figure out, okay, this is how this child learns. Let's do that. So how exactly are you working with parents to accomplish this? Yeah, there's a number of different ways. I have a couple of books I've written, one just about what makes the Suzuki method work in our modern day and age. There's a really famous book by Dr. Suzuki called Nurtured by Love that talks about his philosophy and all teachers ask parents to read it. And I, I just wondered, it, I think it's really valuable and I want parents to read it, but then it's like, but now what? Like, here's this child in front of me. How do I make this work now? So that's, I, I've written a book about that and I've written a book about positive practice, like thinking about where's practice breaking down and where do we go from there? So I have those books. I do a lot of workshops around the country I speak at conferences and uh, teachers will bring me in to talk to the parents in their studios. So it's gotten, gotten bigger and a broader audience, which is exciting. So for any podcast listeners who don't know what the Suzuki method is, can you give us a crash course on what it is? Sure. Before Suzuki came around, they used to wait till children were older to learn music and often give them like an aptitude test to figure out, can they learn music? And so he sort of revolutionized that and said, everybody can learn, but they may have to do it at their own pace in their own way. So, so that's a big part of the Suzuki method. And it's a lot based on technique and learning by ear first. And def- I think there's a bad rap that like Suzuki students don't read music, but w- they do, especially I think all the teachers now don't want that reputation. So, um, but it's like technique and a good ear first and then music reading second. So like Alicia Keys was a Suzuki piano student. And there's a lot of, it's just a very technical method, but also a method that talks a lot about nurturing children. They called it in Japan, the mother tongue method, because it's like, how do you learn your first language? You're surrounded by it. People don't scold you if you like, don't do it correctly at first. They just kind of encourage you along the way. So if you could have one bit of information for everybody to know, what would it be? I think the big thing that I'm always keeping in mind is like a big picture and a long-term goal. I had a teacher trainer once who said like, picture your child 15 years in the future and you are knocking on their front door to come to Thanksgiving and they're on the other side about to open the doorknob. What do you want them to be feeling about you in that moment? And I heard that when my kids were young and I was sort of like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I just think, Sometimes if we can step back and think, okay, 10, 15 years from now, what's important? And in music or in like helping our kids with homework, I know so many parents are doing that at home during this time we're recording this, thinking about, okay, what we did today wasn't perfect maybe, but 10 years from now, what have we gained from whatever we've done? Like maybe it's just that we've shown up and done something. Maybe it's that they've encouraged us or we've encouraged our kids. So that big picture thinking, I think, is the thing. It kind of takes us out of ourselves sometimes and helps us put perspective in place. Definitely. And are you noticing that a lot of parents are struggling even more right now, given that kids are home more and people are taking on more with schooling? Right, exactly. And in a way, maybe some good will come from that because I think there's a lot of shame around, I can't get my child to cooperate with me before all this. I think when there was less people working with their children at home doing schoolwork, it was sort of like something people don't like to talk about, like, 
I like to just go in and just call it what it is and like start the discussion because then it gets rid of the shame part of it. And it's like, okay, this is hard for everybody. So let's just talk about sorting it out and not feel bad about it. So I do hope that conversation opens up more after this because everybody's, you know, I just like all the memes going online and everybody's just like, help. So So how can parents give feedback in a positive way, especially for something that is something a lot of them haven't done before? with schooling? I think it depends on the age. I think asking a lot of questions to your child versus telling your child what to do is really good. I think if you know your child needs a reminder about one thing, but it's frustrating for them that you keep saying it to them, finding some kind of nonverbal way to remind them. So if we're playing violin, maybe it's some kind of hand signal the child works out with the parent, but like talking together, like, okay, how can I remind you about this in a way that's not going to frustrate you and having those conversations? It doesn't work with three-year-olds, but with older students. Yeah. And then the other really valuable one, I think, is just to talk about what is the next thing you want to see your child do versus criticizing what just happened. You know, someone can play something on their instrument, like totally wrong. And I have a choice to either say, wow, you know, that was not so good. Or, well, let's play that again and think about X, Y, Z. And I think you could translate that to homework really easily as well. Just, okay, what, what do they need to do next? And it's really you know, sometimes I'll tell parents, just like write down what the frustrations are, but you don't have to say them out loud to your child. So and that takes a lot of, it takes a lot of emotional energy to do that as a parent. I think especially if we're not parented that way, when we grew up, it's really changing so much. So like, it's a really big job. And I would just say, think about how to do it a little different and, and be patient with yourself while you learn to do that. I think if there's anything else I could say to parents too, it's just knowing that sometimes we put in a lot of work and we don't see the results right away. And there's sometimes a graphic I'll show of just like roots growing in the ground and like nothing's happening above the dirt, but it's just those roots are going down deep or like connections in the brain and we can't see that happening and it can look like nothing's happening, nothing's changing. And so I just like to give, give the perspective of just putting in, like if you think of a garden or something, it's just like you give all the ingredients that are needed and then we don't have control as parents of what's going to come out or how fast it's going to grow or any of those things. And it's just like putting in what's there. And then we have to kind of hand off the rest to our kids. Thanks for joining us today, Christine. If you are curious about any of Christine's resources, links are available in the podcast description. Valiantly Spoken is sponsored by your Alumni Advisory Committee. See you next time.